2016, two Dene children were kidnapped by a man driving a red van. They were taken into the desert, but only one survived the ordeal. Though the kidnapper was caught, questions about the police response would lead to new legislation to protect children in Indian country. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to another episode in the third Thursday series. Every third Thursday of the month for the year 2020, I am profiling another missing or murdered Indigenous persons case. Sometimes I reach way back in the timeline for these episodes, and sometimes I'm covering cases that are still unfolding. Today we are going to talk about a recent case that is resolved but it highlights some of the issues with policing on reservations, things that are yet to be resolved. This case takes place on the Navajo Reservation in the southwest of the United States. Navajo essentially means field people, and it's not the people's name for themselves. They are the Diné, which is often translated to the people, though I watched a really good YouTube video that I'll link in the show notes that explains that this is actually a compound word, de meaning up and ne meaning down. Basically, up to the heavens and down to the earth, and it goes back to their spiritual beliefs and creation beliefs. I am going to for sure be pronouncing these words incorrectly. I can barely enunciate in English, but I did listen to a lot of videos to try to get the pronunciation right, and I know I'm not quite there. Like, I can hear it, but I can't tell exactly what I'm doing wrong. I will have to figure it out, though, because this is not the only case this year I have planned that covers a crime that happened on the Navajo Reservation. So if their name is not Navajo for themselves, why do we say that? And what happened here is what happened often in the New World. The Spanish explorers came to the area, and they asked a nearby tribe, hey, who's that over there? They asked the Anazaza people, who referred to the Dene as field people, due to their large fields and how they used fields as an analogy in teaching their children. The word sounded like Nabejo, and it was transliterated and then altered a little until we finally get to the modern-day word Navajo. Navajo is the name that has stuck as far as what the reservation is called and what some enrolled members call themselves. But Dene is their name in their language, so I will be referring to the people as Dene, even as I refer to legal entities like the police and the reservation as Navajo. Also, just because this has come up from multiple listeners over the last several months, reservation is the proper term here in the U.S., In Canada and Australia, indigenous lands are called reserves, but we do say reservation here in the United States. I don't know for sure, but it is very possible that I've made the mistake of saying reservation when I was talking about Canada in the past, 
but I am not incorrect in saying it when we're talking about the United States. So this story begins on May 2nd, 2016, when the school bus dropped off the Mike children in Lower Fruitland, New Mexico. This is about halfway between Shiprock and Farmington, and it is a very rural area. 12-year-old Gracelyn, 11-year-old Ashlyn, and 9-year-old Ian had just about a quarter mile to walk from the bus stop to their house, where they lived with their father, Gary. Ashlyn and Ian were ahead of Gracelyn, and they were playing alongside the road in an irrigation ditch. A maroon minivan pulled up alongside Gracelyn as she was walking by herself, and the man asked her if she wanted a ride home. Gracelyn said no and kept walking. The man drove on, and then he pulled over to where Ashlyn and Ian were. He called out to them, asking them if they wanted to watch a movie and get a ride home. They were far enough from Graceland, though, that she did not see this happen. Ashlyn was a shy child, so it is a little surprising that she said yes. Except her brother Ian said she did hurt her foot, and that may have been what pushed her to accept a ride from a seemingly friendly stranger when she otherwise would not have. Ashlyn climbed into the front seat, and Ian got into the back seat to go with her. A little bit down the road was another friend. It was possibly a cousin of Ashlyn and Ian. It's been reported friend and cousin, depending on what you read. He had ridden the same bus home as they did, except he got off on a stop further down from them. He was dropped off, he went, he got his bike, and he was already out riding around when the maroon minivan pulled over. The man asked this other little boy if he wanted to go with them, but he said no. When the van pulled away, he said he could see Ashlyn in the front seat, smiling and waving. The time of this incident, with the man pulling over, was initially reported as 2.30, but that is very likely a misunderstanding, which we will get into. I checked the school hours, and school is not dismissed until 3 p.m., so it was definitely after 3, possibly 3.30 or even closer to 4. With the kids in the van, this man drove past the turnoff for their house and kept going west toward the Shiprock Monument rock formation. Now, this area goes from rural to remote to middle of the desert very quickly. The man drove them about 20 miles before turning down a dirt road and pulling over. He pulled Ashlyn from the car and walked her out into the desert, leaving Ian behind in the van. Ian noticed that when the man got out of the van, he grabbed a curved piece of metal before walking off with Ashlyn. Ian estimated he was sitting in the van by himself for about an hour, but the stress of the situation and his age makes this probably a very rough estimate. 
When the man came back to the van, Ashlyn was not with him. The man ordered Ian out of the van, and then he climbed in and took off, leaving this nine-year-old little boy alone in the middle of the desert. Meanwhile, back at the Mike family home, Graceland was getting nervous that her brother and sister hadn't made it back from school yet. She did not want to call her dad at work and interrupt him, so instead she called their mother, Pamela Foster, who lived in Redlands, California. Graceland told Pamela that the younger two hadn't come home yet, and also about this man in the red van who asked her if she wanted a ride. She was worried he was connected to why Ashlyn and Ian hadn't come home. Pamela heard this and immediately called the Navajo Police Department, which has jurisdiction over the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. This is a huge span of land, so obviously they have districts. And the one that oversees the Fruitland area was centered in Shiprock, New Mexico. Pamela later told Esquire magazine that when she called Shiprock to report her children missing, she had trouble getting an officer on the phone. The dispatcher kept putting her on hold, transferring her call, and then finally telling her that there was actually only one officer on duty at that time. Understaffing of tribal police forces is a nationwide issue and a very current one. Not even a year ago, Navajo, San Carlos Apache, and Hopi Nation leaders went to the House of Representatives asking for more money to hire more officers. The Hopi Reservation police serve roughly 9,000 residents over the land space equal to the state of Delaware, and they often find themselves with only one officer on duty at a time. Now, I once lived in a town of 5,000 people that covered four square miles. Yeah, I said four square miles. It could practically be patrolled on foot, and we still had more than one officer on duty at any given time. The Hopi Reservation is over 600 times that size in the land and nearly double the population. So that is where we are starting this missing children's investigation with one police officer who dispatch is having trouble getting a response from, likely because he was dealing with another situation. Pamela grew frustrated, so she just posted on social media to try to get the information on her missing kids out faster than the police seemed able to do. It wasn't until 6.53 that Gary Mike was able to file the missing persons report on his kids. 20 minutes later, and about 20 miles from the Mike family home, Ian was spotted walking alongside the road. So after the kidnapper had left, leaving Ian alone in the desert, he initially looked for his sister. But when he couldn't find her, he decided to go get help. Thankfully, he had not ventured too far from the dirt road 
when he looked for Ashlyn. So he was able to follow that road back to the paved road, which was service route 13, and he just kept walking until he saw headlights coming. When the occupants of that car saw this little boy out by himself, they immediately pulled over. There is nothing out there except for rocks. This is the desert. There was no reasonable explanation for a child to be in a largely uninhabited area, especially as it was getting dark. So, of course, they pulled over. They said Ian looked very scared, and he told them that he had been kidnapped and that he couldn't find his sister. The couple in the car tried to call 911, but again, middle of nowhere, so there was no signal. They drove him to the nearest police station, which was the Shiprock District Station, where he had only recently been reported missing. From the information Ian was able to give, community searchers, who the family had already organized, went out toward Shiprock to look for Ashlyn. But due to the trauma of the situation, and again, nine years old, Ian had a hard time giving too many specifics. But really, if you think about it, even adults would have a hard time giving specifics if they aren't used to the area or the desert, because there really are not a lot of landmarks. You have the Shiprock Rock Formation, but that can be seen for so many miles that it doesn't really narrow it down. What would have been helpful when you have a child or anyone really lost in the desert would be a helicopter. The nearby San Juan County Sheriff's Department has two helicopters, and we've definitely seen jurisdictions pitch in resources when needed in other cases. But that did not happen this night because it appears that San Juan County was not notified. And the family noticed that there didn't seem to be any coordination happening with larger police forces to help search for Ashlyn, even after Ian was found and it was confirmed that this was a kidnapping. Not only that, it was confirmed that Ashlyn was alone in the desert. So a relative decided to take it upon themselves to call the Farmington police to see what was going on. Farmington is the nearest big city. It is just east of the reservation. By big, I mean 40-something thousand people. According to this family member, the police there said they had no idea what was going on. They had not heard anything about a missing child or a kidnapping, which would be unusual for neighboring jurisdictions to not at least be told. And of course, this means there was no Amber Alert issued. In New Mexico at this time, the state police were the only ones who can issue an Amber Alert, generally at the request of a local department. From the time the request is made, until the Amber Alert is either issued or denied, is about 40 minutes. And the main pieces they need for the alert would be 
is the missing person under the age of 17. And Ashlyn obviously checks that box. Another thing is they have to be in imminent danger. And based on what Ian said, this would qualify. And the last thing is, does law enforcement have information on the child or the abductor? Enough information that giving it to the public would help with the recovery of the child. And we have a yes to both. Based on Ian, Graceland, and the other little boy, they had a description of the man and his vehicle. So Farmington was not notified, but now they're hearing there is a missing child out there. They're expecting to be called in, so they actually start getting ready. Due to jurisdictional boundaries, they could not just go onto the Navajo reservation and start searching. They were waiting on a call from the Navajo Nation police to invite them in. That call did not come. At 9.07 p.m., the Navajo Nation police called the FBI to ask them to issue an Amber Alert, which may have been a misunderstanding of the process. New Mexico does require a child to be entered into the FBI's NCIC prior to issuing the Amber Alert but the state is the one who actually issues the alert, not the FBI. We do not have a national Amber Alert system. But it's more likely the issue here was confusion over jurisdiction. The Navajo Nation police span three states. None of the states have jurisdiction on the Navajo Nation. They are under federal jurisdiction, so they went to the FBI. However, they had to go to the state police for the Amber Alert to be issued, since the FBI cannot do that. It took three more hours for the request for an Amber Alert to make it to where it needed to be. The FBI had to call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That call was around midnight. Then Nick Mick ended up calling the New Mexico State Police to get the information there for the Amber Alert. Then the state police confirmed the details, and it was 2.30 in the morning, around seven hours after Ian was found in the desert, for the Amber Alert to be issued. And this Amber Alert going out at 2.30 in the morning was what led some news organizations to report that Ashlyn and Ian were abducted at 2.30. They were actually kidnapped 11 hours before the alert went out. The next day, the searches for Ashlyn continued, and it was at 11.30 in the morning that her body was found by searchers on ATVs. She was found a few miles from where Ian was eventually picked up. This little boy had walked miles for help. A press conference was then held where the FBI announced the description of the man who was suspected in the murder of Ashlyn Mike and a description of his car. 
He was described as a light-skinned Native American man in his 20s or 30s with short hair. He also had a teardrop tattoo under his left eye and earrings in both ears. The van was a maroon minivan with tinted windows, no hubcaps, and a luggage rack on the roof. With this information, everyone, including all of the police in the area now, were on the lookout for this vehicle. At a gas station in Farmington, a San Juan County Sheriff's deputy stopped a red minivan, but the driver, Tom Begay, didn't match the description. He did not have the earrings or the teardrop tattoo. But community tips were coming in, and one of them had to do with Tom Begay. A friend said that he believed Tom had seen the red van in the area at the time of the kidnapping. When the police talked to this friend, he said Tom was currently at a sweat lodge with a handful of other men from the Native American church. They had gathered there specifically for the purpose of praying for Ashlyn. Except when the police got to the sweat lodge, they actually saw the maroon van with the missing hubcaps. They took pictures of the van and of Tom, photographs that Ian would then identify. It turned out that the earrings and the teardrop tattoo descriptors were just someone misremembering. With Ian's identification, Tom Begay, age 27, was then arrested and he quickly confessed. He admitted to taking Ashlyn for the purpose of sexually assaulting her. But as he attempted to assault her, she began crying. He then strangled her, and he hit her with the tire iron that he brought with him from the car. While Tom did not deny that his actions caused Ashlyn's death, he claimed she was actually still alive when he left her. The arrest of Tom Begay shocked the community, not as much as the brutal murder of this sweet little girl, but still, I feel like I say this whenever we talk about small-town crimes, but I feel this is a common experience for these communities that are just shaken with a violent crime that happened to one of their own by one of their own. There were several people who knew both the Mike family and Tom Begay, and they were having a hard time reconciling the person they knew with the reality of what Tom had done. And they also could not wrap their heads around how Tom then went to the sweat lodge to pray for Ashlyn, to participate in the spiritual ceremony while hiding the fact that he was the man who assaulted and killed her. It was just unbelievable. But there was no doubt Tom did this. He confessed to doing it. He gave all the correct information that lined up with the evidence, and Ian identified him. Tom faced six charges related to the kidnapping and murder of Ashlyn and the kidnapping of Ian. 
as 3,000 people attended Ashland's funeral to celebrate the life of the sweet and shy but funny little girl, it seemed like this was case closed. The legal proceedings were almost a formality at that point. However, Tom Begay was first seeking a competency hearing before this case could move forward. And it would take about a year for this hearing to take place. Tom tested at an IQ of 55, which I don't need to tell you is quite low. He had experienced physical abuse and neglect throughout his life. When his mother died in 2014, he was 25 years old and was living in a trailer with his brother. Though an adult, Tom was clearly not able to take care of himself. The home was in bad shape. There was hardly any food in the house. He was living mostly off of breakfast cereal. The Native American church, which his mother had been a member of while she was alive, stepped in during the spring of 2015 when they realized what was going on. They worked to help Tom and his brother, both with material things like food and clothing, but also education on how to care for themselves. So Tom had a low IQ and obviously some developmental issues since he was an adult who couldn't manage a lot of general self-care. But competency in the federal court system is not measured by these things. Rather, they want to know, does Tom understand the nature and consequences of the trial, and can he assist in his own defense? In June 2017, the judge found that Tom was competent with the proper medication, though what condition was being medicated has not been, as far as I can tell, disclosed. With this ruling out of the way, they were ready to proceed to trial, so both sides actually sat down and started working on a plea deal. While the Navajo Nation does have its own court system, serious crimes like murder do fall under federal jurisdiction. So this was in the federal courts. And the federal courts do have the option to seek the death penalty. In this plea deal, the prosecutors took the death penalty off the table in exchange for a guilty plea on all counts with a mandatory sentence of life without parole. This plea deal was approved of by the family. For one, they did not want to go to trial. A trial would mean putting Ian through testifying and all the re-traumatization that entailed. And the Diné beliefs oppose the taking of life for vengeance. And as such, they oppose the death penalty anyway. Now, you might think, like I naively did, that the death of a Diné girl by a Diné man on the reservation would mean the federal government would 
out of respect for the beliefs of everyone involved, not seek the death penalty. Even if we take Tom Begay out of the equation, at least honor the family of the victim and their beliefs and just not seek the death penalty. You may be as ignorant as I was in assuming there would be some understanding between the federal government and the tribe that murders that happen under Navajo police jurisdiction just would not be death penalty eligible due to the sincerely held beliefs of the community. But we are incorrect. The only Native American on federal death row right now is Lesmond Mitchell, and it is a similar situation in the sense that he and his victims are Diné, and the murders happened on the reservation. So the feds may not supersede the Navajo Nation on this issue often, but they have shown that they will do it. Tom Begay, by taking the plea deal, would not be taking this risk. On August 1st, 2017, Tom Begay pleaded guilty to all six counts. There were no dropped or lessened charges in this plea deal. His sentencing was held on October 2017, and he did not speak. His attorney did get a few points on the record, even though, like I said, there was a mandatory sentence here. So there wasn't really anything to gain or lose here. The attorney said that Tom was intellectually disabled and he had experienced abuse growing up, including being hit in the head with a two-by-four. The attorney went on to say that this was not an excuse for what he did, but Tom's hope was that the community could find peace in working towards protecting all children. As it would turn out, the people who were fighting to protect all children were going to be Ashlyn's parents. Prior to Tom Begay's plea deal, prior to his sentencing, so while this is all still going through the courts, Gary Mike sued the Navajo Nation. His lawsuit further highlighted the issues with how Ashland's case was handled. The complaint said straight out that the Navajo Nation's own failings directly contributed to Ashland's death. If a concentrated search had started when Gary reported his children missing, Ashland could have been saved. This is based on Tom Begay saying that he left her when she was still alive. The lawsuit also pointed out that the tribe had multiple opportunities to develop an emergency alert system like an Amber Alert, and they even received grants to do so, but then they didn't use that money properly. So let's go ahead and talk about that. We've already covered the jurisdictional confusion where the state police issue Amber Alerts but the reservation is not under state jurisdiction. So the solution to this would be to allow the Navajo Nation to put out their own alerts. 
The Navajo Reservation is the largest in the U.S. It is roughly the size of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts put together. Covering that large area of land that straddles multiple states and Yeah, it does make sense to equip them to issue their own alerts. In 2007, they were granted $330,000 from the Justice Department to take part in a new initiative called Amber Alert in Indian Country. They were one of 10 pilot programs in the nation, and a Navajo police captain was nominated to coordinate it through the Navajo Nation Police. This money would allow them to upgrade equipment, pay for training, and also pay for the time needed to just get the system up and running. The money, however, was not used for this. According to Gary's lawsuit, it was used for other projects and employee bonuses. When the police captain who was Coordinating this left the job three years into the program. No replacement was ever named. And then the tribal council did not pass a resolution to keep the program going. So roughly half the money wasn't used at all and it was returned to the federal government. Then in 2011, the Navajo Nation received a grant for $357,000. This wasn't directly for an Amber Alert system, but elements of this grant would have assisted since it was partially aimed for upgrading systems, computers, and hard drives, and just getting everything linked in to federal databases. The reason why, in 2011, that the Navajo Nation did not already have this equipment is an extension of the digital divide that occurs with reservations. Even after a number of government initiatives to close this divide, we still have 41% of those living on tribal lands not having access to broadband internet. We can't point to one thing and say that is why we have a digital divide. There are contributing factors. One that comes up pretty often is that reservations often have large amounts of rural or remote areas. And that seems to track until you look at a state that has no reservations, like the state of Missouri, which also has large amounts of rural or remote areas, but 80% of the population has access to broadband. It's not just that these areas are rural and remote, it's where they are located. The tribes did not pick these reservations, the government did. And they certainly didn't look at prime real estate and say, oh, let's give that land over there to the Diné. They looked at what they had left over, the land they didn't want, that they didn't think they could do anything with. So they are dropping reservations in the middle of the desert or rocky terrain that you can't farm, areas where it is difficult to dig. And then we have a list of things a company would have to do to even get permission to start laying the cables needed. They would have to consult with the tribal government and the federal government. 
they would have to do historic and environmental studies. And assuming they got all that done, now they have to dig in difficult terrain. Add in the low population density and the percentage of people who would not be able to afford a $70, $100 a month internet bill. And it seems like that's a lot of effort for these companies to gain a few customers. And it doesn't seem worth it to a business whose job is to make a profit. Without the initiatives to close the digital divide, I can't even imagine how wide it would be right now. We have to incentivize businesses to do business in areas where they don't think they're going to make a huge profit. Fortunately, police stations are generally in the more densely populated areas of the reservations, giving them access to broadband internet. So we close the digital divide enough that the police have the foundation to start using things like Amber Alerts and national databases. So then on top of that, we need to bring in the equipment and the training. But Gary Mike is claiming in this lawsuit that the grant funds designed specifically for this were misused. An interesting part of his lawsuit is that he was not asking for monetary damages. His attorney said that in the end, the family was just looking for the Navajo Nation to acknowledge that they failed Ashlyn, to take a hard look at what happened so that it can never happen again. So while the criminal courts were going to deal out justice for her killer, Gary Mike wanted the civil court to hold the Navajo Nation responsible for their role. The conversation about the lack of an Amber Alert system did push the Navajo Nation and Congress into acting. In December 2017, the Navajo Nation purchased the software they needed to start their Amber Alert system. But this was not enough for Ashlyn's mother, Pamela. She did not want to fix one reservation. She went to legislators and got a bill put before Congress, and it passed both houses. In April 2018, the Amber Alert in Indian Country Act, also called Ashland's Law, was signed. It allows for tribal Amber Alert systems to integrate with state systems, and it makes tribes eligible for Amber Alert grants. Being a law rather than a Justice Department initiative, really gives Ashland's law a lot more teeth. And it would be in effect for all federally recognized tribal lands, not just 10 pilot programs. The person overseeing the project on the grand scale is Jim Walters. And he's the same one who worked with the tribes on the initial project. So he has seen firsthand the obstacles. I feel personally very hopeful about this because reading what he says, he doesn't seem oblivious to the hesitancy of indigenous people to trust government programs. 
He is coming into this expecting that he is going to have to show them that the tribal police are retaining jurisdiction. What they're doing is they're getting support and access to resources that city, county, and state police have. He is going in there expecting to have to do some community work. And that is not something we always see. There is one more chapter in this case that has begun, and that is Tom Begay's appeal. He did plead guilty, and you have limited options to appeal after a guilty plea. Tom is basically appealing his sentence, and he did this through a motion filed in June 2019. But his sentence was mandatory for a first-degree murder charge, which he pleaded guilty to. So to get a lesser sentence, he has to argue that he should have been given a lesser charge to plead guilty to. Tom claimed in his motion that he was not aware of his rights when he underwent the psychiatric evaluation related to his competency hearing. He also said he didn't understand the charges that he pleaded guilty to due to his low IQ. The motion went on to say that Tom was drunk when he committed the crime and the intoxication plus low IQ meant he couldn't have premeditated this, which is a requirement for a charge of first-degree murder. He said if he had a competent attorney, he could have pleaded out to a lower charge, like second-degree murder, which would have given him a chance at parole. The docket report shows no movement on the appeal since Tom filed an amendment to it back in August 2019, but as always, I will keep you updated. The work continues to implement the Amber Alert system on reservations, and the effort is worth it because Amber Alerts work. According to the Justice Department website, as of May 2020, 988 children have been rescued specifically because of the Amber Alert system. That is since the first Amber Alert child was found in 1999. Eight-week-old Rayleigh Bradbury was kidnapped by her babysitter, who was caught when someone recognized the vehicle from her Amber Alert. 20 years later, in 2019, Ashlyn's mother Pamela spoke to representatives from 20 tribes who attended training in New Mexico. She urged them to keep working towards getting this system in place. The hope, the prayer, is that this effort is wasted and the system is never needed. But should another kid, another bright-eyed fifth grader with the whole world before her, goes missing, maybe they can find her in time. 